0: Throughout the movie, Demi gets across more terror than a dozen Friday the 13th by showing not the horrifying thing itself, but the faces of people looking at horror. That's from Kathy Huffheinz of Detroit Free Press. That's right. With Halloween right around the corner, Silence of the Lambs, one of the scariest movies of all time and one of the most critically acclaimed ever as well. Five Academy Awards. Chris Cody finally saw it. It's available on Showtime. That's what we're doing in of the Lambs this week here. That's our old movie. Our wild card? Oh, baby. Jeremy Strong. That's right the stud from Succession. He's got a new film out called Armageddon Time. He rarely does interviews, unless he really cares about the subject matter. That's where you're gonna see him on Mark Marin's WTF. I saw him on Colbert, and we got him here on Cinefile, along with a very good director in James Gray, who has directed this film, and it also stars Anthony Hopkins. See the segue there, Sons of Lambs, Anthony Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins, new movie coming out as well. And as far as our new this week, the fabulous streaming show, which I love, it's on Hulu, it's called Rami. It's one of my favorite comedies, the third season in the books. I watched all 10 episodes with my wife so, my thoughts on Rami's Season 3. First and foremost, though, thanks to everybody for listening. Always go to Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. And a lot of comments, not necessarily with the movies last week, but the fact that my car is still operating. The amount of people who thought, Chris, I would be driving around with a, a, a car bomb... A, it did not happen the car is running smoothly Calm. I text you pictures you said good as new my buddy John Leboy at work took a look at it he goes wow I gotta tell you that's pretty impressive craftsmanship it was an awkward way to get there but ultimately the
1: car looks good oh, I'm still I've been thinking about it all week did he say 750 did he say 1750 <laughs> I need to know I'm still I'm convinced at this point that he said 750 and then just screwed you
0: yeah, this is without question. But ultimately, how badly did he screw me? Like,
1: if you didn't hear the story, yeah. just to jump in, go back and listen to last week's episode because it's one of the yes. most epic stories Adnan's told on this podcast since I've been producing it. I loved it, listened to it multiple times, had my wife listen to it. <laughs> I was like, This is just such a funny predicament, especially for such a nice man like you.
0: I appreciate you and I are both very nice guys. And now I'm telling my wife, I go, listen, I bought her a Cadillac Escalator a year ago. That's our family car. I go, I noticed a couple scratches in the Cadillac. She goes, Don't you know? I go, I'm telling right now I can get this guy 300 bucks 1300 like he'll screw the yeah. price again but he'll do a good job next time I swear he'll text
1: the, no- the, the amount just to get it in yes. writing
0: yeah exactly I should have texted the amount write it down a little, uh, you know, a little contract we'll figure it out anyways uh, as Chris said hope you enjoyed that episode if not take a listen to it let's get right to our wild card yeah. alright Jeremy Strong absolute stud him and James Gray Armageddon time terrific film it opens in theaters this Friday enjoy these guys and then we'll come back and talk a little movies Armageddon Time is the new film from James Gray. He's, of course, a terrific director who has made so many impactful movies over the years. Ad Astra, a personal favorite of mine. And his latest film, Armageddon Time, as I mentioned, is terrific. It stars Jeremy Strong, among others, Anne Hathaway and Anthony Hopkins. A big thank you and a welcome to James and Jeremy. James, I'll start with you. What sparked the decision to tell such a personal story? I believe this is autobiographical. When I hear that, I always say, okay, is everything autobiographical? Is it semi-autobiographical? But obviously a very personal story. What sparked you to do this story now?
2: Um, over the past several years, uh, I have been telling bedtime stories to my children. They always want to hear the stories about my childhood, which I tried to tell with a, a kind of unvarnished truth to them. And then we were in New York. And they said, we want to go to the beach, dad. And I said, Okay, so we all packed up a rental car. And we started driving out to the beach and driving across the 59th Street Bridge. They said, Well, where did you grow up, dad? So I took them back to the house that I grew up in. And I think they were quite shocked. They thought it was They said, dad, this is so small. Is this it? I guess they had, you know, Put it in the, the imagination is so powerful. And I, I started to think back uh, about my own past a little bit. And frankly, getting older, you start to... Uh You start to look back more than you look forward.
0: That makes sense. Especially once you have kids, you want to kind of tell that story. And this is a great story about a family. And Jeremy, I know you're as as big an Al Pacino fan as I am. And I always think of that story from Dog Day Afternoon when they shot the first couple days and Al went to Sidney Lumet and said, we got to do it again. He said, why? He goes, I got to get rid of the glasses. This guy wouldn't wear glasses. He'd want to get caught. And while watching the movie, I kept staring at your glasses. And I go, I love this guy's glasses. I love how specific those are. And your hair and the starch shirt. And I said, I know what a thespian you are, your attention to detail. Tell me about the glasses specifically and just how you were able to create the character.
3: (laughs) I love that. The glasses. You've never been asked that. Have you been asked that? No. That's great. Thanks, Ed, man. I'd seen photographs. You know, one of the first things I did was try and get my hands on as much... Of the kind of source material as I could. There was a time later than this story where James's father had a pair of glasses, and I kind of scoured the earth. Honestly, I I tried on dozens and dozens of glasses. I found this pair on eBay, I think, from Germany, and uh, and you just know it when you know it. So, you know, it's you're you become a bit of a detective with it with it with like a. Inexhaustible curiosity and appetite when you take on a role because you have to find out everything. You have to find out everything so that you become an authority on this person. You know, in in a a visceral way. And yeah, you know, it's funny. You want you know, we talked about what was it? Brill cream. Brill cream. So they wanted me to use Brill cream in my hair because I think that's what Irving would have done, and it just wasn't right. And so I found this basically like a talcum powder. That if I used like two bottles worth in my hair, it created this sort of coarse texture. And so I would just like really <laughs> go to town with it. The truth is my grandfather was a, was a plumber who lived in Flushing. And, the, and, you know, I wore his watch in the movie and, and he had a kind of dun colored jacket that, that was in my mind. And there's, there's, there's elements of him in this as well but i thank you for for you know those details they 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 really matter you know in a way they're cosmetic but they also help create a vivid you know what you want to do is create something vivid and indelible as an actor and at the same time uh, something truthful.
0: Yeah, you certainly did. I remember also in the director commenter to Donnie Brasco, Mike Newell again praised Pacino as Lefty Ruggiero. He goes, Those glasses, just like you. He goes,
3: He tried the f- Lefty glasses are fantastic.
0: <laughs> he tried like 50 different glasses to get the right one. And I kept thinking, James, I go, Imagine if Jeremy tries an artistic choice and you go, No, no, listen, damn it, you're playing my dad. My dad would never do that. Like how-
3: James really gave, you know, at a certain point, he said, It's yours now, you know, and which is not to say, there wasn't a sort of back and forth sometimes, but, but really he did sort of give us the ownership over these characters, which you have to have as an actor, because you can only go according to your instincts. You can't really go according to someone else's ideas or memories. Yeah. But
2: uh, yeah. Well, of course, I wanted to give them freedom. The, I wanted to give Jeremy and the other wonderful actors a certain measure of freedom. It's theirs to start creating. They have to live it. It's not to just recreate or do like, you know, a, Rich little impersonation of my parents. You know that's not, that's not interesting. I mean, all of the work is a kind of fantasia on the truth, not the truth.
0: Yeah, and I kept thinking, James, like the devil's in the details. Like I was like, if he had to pitch this, he'd be like, coming of age story. And I'm like, I just imagine some studio executive that doesn't know you and know the level of work you do, and you're like coming of age story. He's like, oh, okay, Jewish family, Well, like Avalon, like Barry Levinson. I'm like, well, well, no, like it's kind of different. Like it's very specific to what we're doing. And I think that. Part of the reason why the story really stuck with me, I kept thinking about it. I go, what is it about it that stood out? I think it's this. I think that it's nostalgic and it's coming of age, but it's like genuinely bittersweet. Like I came out of the theater and I was like, that wasn't what I was expecting. Like I, I, I thought certain elements would be there. Like, oh, Anthony Hopkins, kindly grandfather, but then that story went in a different direction. Jeremy's character as your father, I'm like, okay, I thought he was a certain archetype, then he completely surprised me with a couple of scenes. And I really had no idea where that ending was coming from, and it really moved me inexpressibly because, again, I don't want to tip anyone's hand on this, I want everyone to see the film, but I just think you made really interesting choices. How much do you fight as an artist to say, okay, how do I make this crowd pleasing? How do I be authentic to myself? How do I make just a good movie in under two hours? Do you find that battle is there?
2: First of all, thank you for saying such nice things. I'm going to tell you something which will probably make sure that I'll never be employable again, which is that I never, ever, ever think of the audience, not ever. I think of an audience, which means somebody's going to have to watch this at some point. But I think it is a serious mistake to think about what will please the audience, because then I start going down a road where I am not doing a movie with the details that you prefer I start focusing on projecting wanting to be liked in some way which is not the job of the director I don't think and I by the way I'm going to say that directors like if you were to say like Steven Spielberg or somebody who like is a tremendously commercially successful director spielberg makes very personal movies i don't know i mean maybe he does but i don't think he sits there and says every choice is like what they want you see him in the movies so it has to start with you it doesn't it's not it can't be jury rigged for a response and so you're i'm thrilled by your reaction but what you try to do is get really specific because every story has been told. Everything is banal if reduced to its most completely basic elements, right? The devil is in the details. How many mafia movies had existed before The Godfather? Before Francis Coppola had the wisdom to put those white Chinese food containers on the table and to have, you know, oh, I got a and he's throwing the sandwiches at the wedding. The details, it's what made that sing. So... In the specific becomes the general. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're right. To make it universal, make it specific. And Jeremy, for your character, I'm assuming you guys shot out of sequence, so you obviously know the script, but you don't want to tip your hand the way your character is going to unfold. And I always think it's a challenge for that kind of a character. Again, I think I know him. Rigid, stern. Disciplinarian of a different era, work-oriented, doesn't care about his kids. Just hey, the one scene where he's like, "You look sharp, kids. Beginning of your new life. Now get out of here. Aren't you going to drop me off? No, take the subway. It's your own thing now. Come on, get out of here. I got to work on this, you know, thing over here." And I'm like, "Okay." Like he's just that's that dad. But then
3: soldering. Uh, he's he got a soldering on there. <laughs> I, got,
0: I got some soldering to do, kid. Okay, get to your class. But then there's a couple scenes that, like, I'm I'm getting emotional watching. I go, "Oh my god!" Like there's there's always more depth to the, these people than you realize. How did you manage yeah. that nuance and say, okay, I'm going to let you in a little bit at a time and then really kind of hit the big moment when I need to?
3: Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, that, I really credit James with that because that's, that's in the writing. You know, the, the, the writing of this, this man who is sort of a walking contradiction as we all are, um, who has both goofiness and sternness and tenderness and brutality, uh and who you know i thought about him as a written as a boiler repairman and this idea of this boiler yeah. that is sort of dysregulated that is going to blow you know and i think we, we a lot of us can relate to that or have had experiences with people like that maybe people's you know I, I, there's a lot of people on our crew on certain days of filming that said man you know my dad used to this or that and 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 I think it's what James is talking about, about being unvarnished and unflinching about it. But as far as what you're saying, how that unfolds, I think you really, the writing gives you such a great map. If you feel connected enough to the character uh, um, and you understand, and you can sort of see feelingly through their eyes, uh, then you can just walk into each scene and, and play that scene. And and the and the composite of all of those scenes will add up to give you ideally a very dimensional human being. But I what I loved when I read it was that it contained multitudes, uh that he isn't just this this stern sort of you know uh, uh um wrathful father. There there's a there's a there's a sense of ineptitude, uh and 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 and, and a sort of uncomprehending attempt to 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 be uh, to be a good father uh, that that he falls short of in so many ways, but I think there is love there, um, and so I, I just I, I love doing this, and and I was very keenly aware and painfully aware that James is at the monitor, sort of watching what at times is tr- traumatic stuff being reenacted um and uh but in service of you know, as as you said, bittersweet, I mean, James talks sometimes about how beauty doesn't mean something is pretty, you know, to, something beautiful can also be melancholic, uh, can also be an experience of loss, um, while also an experience of 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 sort of affirming this these moments in time.
0: It's a real coup to have Jeremy Strong in your movie. It's a coup to have Anne Hathaway and James, a real coup to have Anthony Hopkins. And as soon as he's on the screen, he just lights up like, oh my God. Like, I just hope he gives us another 80 years of performances like this. I, I still can't believe how great he was in The Father. I'm so happy he
2: won an Oscar there. Tell me about working with Sir Anthony Hopkins. He makes your life very easy. <laughs> you know, I mean, it beca- you know what it is? It becomes all about the work. There is no handholding necessary. Not, by the way, there was no handholding with him either or with, with Annie You just you realize that it's basically you're playing all the time in the best way. So you say, take one. He tries something, and then take two. You just whisper a couple of things to him. You know, try, try thinking of it as a benediction. Ah, yes, 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 benediction. Okay, okay. Let's do. I'll try that. And then that's enough for him to go in another direction because the level of craft is at such masterful. Uh, uh does such a masterful degree to it that really it's all about what actually the process should be which is actor is is getting just a few key things to help him mm-hmm. uh try new things try new paths and he's good enough to try anything
0: yeah i can't remember the director it was but he said one time it might have been john houston he was like there's there's only two directions like it's more or less like you don't you don't need to yeah, give too that, much that,
2: the, you're you're right. I, there's that. There's also another school of thought. William Wyler used to say. Uh, he used to say, faster, slower, uh, louder, softer. That's <laughs> it's not. It's not quite true, really. It's a bit of a lie yeah, because, yeah. you know, the the whole. I mean, that's them sort of trying to demystify the process. Those old studio guys who were all like completely brilliant on every level, like genius craftsmen. But also, they were working with actors. Who were, work, who were in a very tra- different tradition. You know, it's sort of underrated today that today, after Brando and Montgomery Clift, the whole language about how you talk to actors changed, and necessarily so. And now I think we have to get much more specific and can get more specific. You know, people forget you said to Cary Grant, right? You said, go from there and and stand over there and say your line. I don't know what you're doing with that dog. And then you just walk over there and you say the next line, right? right? You know what I'm mean? saying? It was like, literally like that. Yeah. Once Brando picked up the glove, and on the waterfront, you couldn't talk to an actor like that anymore. It's
0: funny. I just saw the scene the other day on, on the waterfront. It's so good the way. It is. I just love the fact they didn't call cut. The fact that Ilya Kazan knew just keep rolling. Right? Anybody else would call cut. He's like, no. He puts the glove on, hands to her, hands are back. Oh, I'm not chewing on his gum.
3: It's- That's James too. I mean, there was a lot. There's a lot in this movie that wasn't scripted. That is just us living in the environment, in the circumstances, living in the characters. And he would just keep the camera on, and and you know he understands but there's an element of sort of uh catching lightning in a bottle with film and you know we didn't have to talk very much really there's a kind of transference that happens in a just a sort of tacit connection you have with your director and he would whisper a few things but but really working with those people with 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 the kids too who are brilliant but working with Annie and, and Tony you just feel they'll just meet you there wherever you go they'll meet you there and so it's this incredible trust fall with each other. You guys listen. Listening is the key to acting yeah.
2: because you, you, know, you have to feed off what the other actor is giving you. And then it becomes a
3: process of give and take. Great actors listen. He's a great listener. The, kid, the kids were good at listening. Were. We had this once so my first day with Tony, who you know, I call him Tony. He's like one of my idols, of course, um, but he's, just a, he's, a, he's a wonderful man. I'm fixing a fridge and you know there are a couple of lines of text about the fridge and you know you want to do your homework and understand what the parts of a fridge are and what you'd be doing and what your tools would be and and so i asked james you know can we can i just kind of mess around and do things and 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 i'll ask aaron to get my tool set and he can hand me my socket and he can you know i'll, I'll tell him what to do and james said sure let's just set it up and we'll just do it and tony said let's just do it and and so I was doing something with some Freon tubes I think and Tony was holding my socket set and then he put on a headlamp and he's handing me things and I've got a wrench and I'm trying to fix something and he just starts singing the mystery of life and... I'm fixing a fridge. He's got a headlamp on. I don't think it's in the movie. It's not in, the but it was movie. like a moment where time stood still, and it was really—I'll never forget it. It was great, but the movie wasn't about fixing the
2: fridge. I had to get rid of it. I understood. Sometimes. Fair enough. But 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 you still feel it. You yeah, still exactly.
3: Feel it. Yeah. No, it's all there. That's the iceberg.
0: Yeah. Uh, exactly. Two minutes left. I'll close with this, Jeremy. I just think your career is so fascinating. You know, you're in this massive hit in succession. I love the show like everybody else. I hopefully that season four coming back in the spring. Couple of quick ones. One: How often does Brian Cox tell you to fuck off?
3: <laughs> you know, only on screen. He's a he's he's a very sweet man uh, in life, which I find actually uh, I have to keep a distance because it doesn't help me. Uh, it doesn't help me believe what I'm doing.
0: Uh, last Thanks. one. I know you love Daniel Day-Lewis as much as me. People can look up the stories. You worked under him, apprenticed under him. I'm going to think you're going to say your favorite performance of his is "My Left Foot" or maybe "In the Name of the Father." But does it get any better than there will be blood? I just watched it again. That is the the pinnacle of screen acting, and for you, James P. T. Anderson, it's incredible, isn't it?
3: He, you know, it's hard to rate those. It's hard to rate those performances. He's in a. I mean, God, <laughs> I he's had such an influence on on all of us, and you know, talk about theatrical courage. Like he's somebody who really, um, he is in. Uh, just his own rare air and and there's so much to learn from from watching his work and and the way he disappears into those roles and and that's the you know that's an ideal for all of us in a way can we can we really can we disappear into these roles so that the audience can experience the characters and not us the actor
0: well, I think you're making now he's done he's done. <laughs>
3: Retired. sixty
0: years old I'm out of here I'm like, okay, fair enough. Um, Armageddon Time is the film I encourage everyone to check it out it's a beautiful film it's touching it's moving and it's I think it'll be one of the best pictures of the year when you look at all the critics lists. James Gray is one of my favorite filmmakers he takes chances he makes different movies and Jeremy Strong who, as I said has a monster hit he's a Best Actor winner Emmy Award winner for Succession and in his downtime, he goes and makes movies with Aaron Sorkin and James Gray and gives us all this great work props to both of you I'm a huge fan of both of you
3: thank you so much thank, okay. you. thank you
0: thanks guys take care
3: that was nice that was so nice
0: All right, let's get into Silence of the Lambs. Again, thank you to Jeremy and James. They were terrific. But I want to do Silence of the Lambs because Chris saw it. Mm-hmm. It's obviously one of the biggest Oscar movies of all time. Um, let's start with multiple Migs. I can smell your c- <laughs> I myself strangely cannot. Like for a film that won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Screenplay... Little filthy, like multiple Migs. He's, gotcha! I'm like that is that is just a disgusting.
1: But that's the way you imagine somebody who's in the world's worst criminals are being held here. You're gonna get yourself a Migs. Like it's just what you're uh, gonna. But I I, I get the hype, man. Like I the opening scene where the lady first is going to see Hannibal Lecter for the first time, and she's walking down the and when she passes Migs and she gets to his cell, the way he's just standing there. What a just a great performance, obviously, by Hopkins. All right,
0: let's get through it. So the open, you see Foster training rather than they're originally gonna have like an FBI ambush, and Jody Foster convinced the director, Jonathan Demi, go, let's not do that. That's the old cliched move, or oh, FBI, let's do something different, showing my character getting built up. You mentioned Hopkins, he's obviously incredible. Twenty-four minutes and fifty-two seconds in the movie. That's the second shortest length ever to win Best Actor. like That's that's a supporting actor type lead, but he's such a great character, one of the great villains of all time, and his performance is so magnetic yeah. and so charismatic and so creepy. He ends up being a Best Actor. Sean Connery originally was offered the lead. That's who Jonathan Demme, the director, wanted. He turned it down. Hopkins gets it. Hopkins had been an actor since the 60s. He'd been trying to break into Hollywood for decades. Hadn't really gotten it done. This was his last-ditch effort. He goes, you know what? If I don't become a Hollywood success, I'm going to go back and just focus on Shakespeare and the uh, British stage in Instead, Demi cast him because he loved his performance in The Elephant Man, David Lynch film back in 1980. Hopkins goes, wait, The Elephant Man, I played a good character. He goes, yeah, he's a good guy. He goes, well, so is Hannibal Lecter. He's just trapped inside an insane brain. He's like, okay, fair enough. I got it. (laughs) Gene Hackman originally bought the rights to this film and then watched himself in Mississippi Burning at the Oscars and said, you know what? I don't want to be in any more violent type of material. I'm not going to do it. Again, Demi, the director. He wanted Michelle Pfeiffer. He had made Married to the Mob with her. Michelle Pfeiffer wanted two million dollars. The studio said no, and so Jodie Foster was wow. the backup. Imagine this film with Michelle Pfeiffer—rather yeah. different in the lead. I world. love how Foster-
1: the that cell, like in that, like where they have Hannibal to start the movie when she goes and visits him. They make it scary with like the red lights and eerie. It's like yeah. you'd think if you had a place with all these scary people, we don't want to make it scary too. Like I, I obviously it's a movie, but it was just so like I feel like if I was running the decor of that place, I would lighten things up there. So yeah. when people came in, they weren't scared. Shitless it's like (laughs) I'm walking in to go see the scariest guy ever and they have these dim red lights here It's like why is this room lit red? Like what yeah. it's a scary color. <laughs> Make it as horrifying as possible. <laughs> Jodie Foster, that first scene when you're talking when
0: she meets Anthony Hopkins, he had Lib making fun of her accent. And Foster, that look on her face, she's genuinely surprised yeah. and a little bit offended that he does it. But afterwards thanked him because he got a genuine reaction out of her making fun of her southern accent. She ends up winning another Academy Award, Jodie Foster. Second Oscar before she was the age of thirty. The accused she also won an Academy Award. That plays a rape victim, very intense film. So Foster obviously claimed actress became prominent of course she was with Scorsese and De Niro backing taxi drivers so she's really at this point of her career you know late 20s mano mono with Hopkins who is not a very major actor and when he does that noise one of the most famous lines fava beans and a nice Chianti yeah that noise on set they all loved it Demi the director after said he didn't like it as he was editing it then it grading but he goes you know what everyone else liked it we're gonna go with it they end up using that that sound effect how about Buffalo Bill? In order, in order to get to the character, and this is now, I mean, there's some revisionist history now. Certain communities might watch this and go, oh, he's making transgender community look a little offensive. He actually, for research, visited trans bars, and he insisted to Jonathan Demi they had to include that dancing at the end. There's this overweight woman caught in a, in a cell. He's holding prisoner. And there's a close of him putting lipstick on of eyeliner, and he starts dancing. And he says, you hear him whispering to himself, would you fuck me? <laughs> I would fuck me, yeah. and then he moves back and like tucks his. You can see him just yes. you know, gesturing. What a weird but scene! He just tucks his, yeah. through his legs, and it's like that
1: scene completely unnecessary. Yeah. One of the more disturbing scenes ever, and a best picture. I him. love my <laughs> the, when I saw it. Puts the lotion on. I had, I had, I know of that scene because of Joe <laughs> Dirt. Have you ever seen Joe Dirt? They like recreate, I have not. They I'm recreate that scene. There's like a woman who's being hostage, and there's a guy. It's like, it puts the lotion. So it's one of those things. That was an ode to Silence of the Lambs that I learned of in when I saw Silence of the Lambs. I I thought that was a Joe Dirt thing until then. Love Joe Dirt. Scott Glenn, by the way, playing the
0: FBI agent, he thanked the FBI agent who he met with a few times for research. And because you really want research. Take a listen to this. And he handed him an audio cassette. And it was of a woman being, like, raped and beaten. And Scott Glenn, to this day, goes, I listened to one minute of it. And he goes, it scarred me for life. He goes, I, I thought I got in deep into the role yeah. as Zip age.' He goes, well, hey, if you really want to know what it's like, take a listen to this. And I go, okay, you know what? I, I needed enough for the role. I don't want to actually go into that world because it is so horrifying and so scary. When Foster knows it's him, and she looks over and sees, you know, because he's very skilled as a tailor. She can see all the different yarn and pictures and stuff. How about the, this is how dated the film feels, 1991. She says... Can I use your phone to make a call? Yes. <laughs> it's so, so bizarre. Like, can I use your house yeah. phone? I have to go report the fact that you're a serial killer and you've been murdering people. Sure you can use my phone. <laughs> oh. And then he runs at the shootout. Also after that scene, you're talking about picking holes. Scott Glenn says to Jody Foster Are you okay? I just almost was killed in the dark. I shot yeah. a serial killer. So, are you okay? Yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm going to get a Whopper and a Big Mac. We're going to go? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine now.
1: Are we going to talk about how much, how it's bullshit that, how did he escape that, pre- like, that escape scene was the really, only the only part where I was just like, wait, so the other place he was at, it was like the most high security prison ever. And now all of a yeah. sudden he just has two guards watching him and no one else knows. He can, like, He's got the,
0: yeah, he's got the pen in the hand. The
1: two guards come. They lock him up while they bring in his food. How did he get the he's pen, by the, the way? Pen. Like, the pen, I saw there's a scene where he looks at the pen but like he's he's tied up so like how did he get the pen yeah i don't know i don't know how he
0: gets the pen but he he breaks the lock boom and then starts biting the guy beats the other guy to death opera music playing That's a great scene but just a little like there would
1: be more security there
0: (laughs) like even correct yeah and how about the way that after that unfolds all the cops are checking out there's blood coming from the elevator that's really well done by Jonathan Demme it's like face off he just rips the guy's face his bloody disgusting face mask and then ends up being Hannibal Lecter Demme is such a terrific director I mean he he talks specifically with the visual style which is unmistakable the one thing with Jonathan Demme he loves himself some extreme close-ups I mean the close-up is there in a Jonathan Demme film particularly, he said whenever you know, Jodie Foster is being spoken to, they're looking right at the camera. So it's as if Jodie Foster is you, the audience. And whenever she's speaking, it's a little, slightly off camera. So it's not directly into the camera. But he was very specific in that style. That really comes to fruition, that big scene you know, where you have the whole... Title of Sons of Lambs, you know, you're trying to get rid of that sound of that awful screaming of the lambs, Clarice, like that. That way he
1: is just in yeah. itself creepy and amazing.
0: A great call, like just a name that is creepy because of him. Like, have you ever met another Clarice? You're like, oh my god, you're gonna think of Hannibal Lecter, yeah. and uh, of course, an unforgettable last line. I'm having an old friend for dinner. Oh. One of the all-time great closing lines. I didn't even know where that guy
1: was that gonna guy be. Or. I think his name was Chilton or something. Like that was like the, <laughs> what's his... Chilton. It just he, it's like there. it's like the, the the movie ends with him just knowing like a random country he was it seemed like I don't know where he was I love that he got away though because like honestly and not to a spoiler uh, alert. <laughs> it's been
0: thirty. It's been thirty plus. But
1: because, uh, like, thinking predictably, you know, I thought he was gonna get caught. So it's kind of just it was kind of a shocking end that he just gets away.
0: Yeah, and I think that's part of why it was probably well so well received because you think it's gonna go certain directions. Most movies of this genre would bad guy captured, yeah. he serves in prison, she lives a happy life. No, he just lives on. And I, and I love that last conversation. Like he's like, I have no desire to come after you. I hope that holds true for me. She's like can't hold my hand of the bargain. He's like, okay, well, I understand. In the meantime, I'm going to have an old friend for dinner. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go be Hannibal and the there was, this And there was,
1: card my this. ignorance, there was a Silence of the Lambs too. Yes. Hannibal
0: the movie in 2001. Seven years have passed since Dr. Hannibal Lecter escaped from custody. Gary Oldman was in that film. Julianne
1: Moore, Ray good. Liotta. Yeah. I could just Terrific hear by cast. your tone that it wasn't as good.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was not as good. I mean, remember, like, oh, my God, this cast is us. Made a ton of money. By the way, the original Silence of the Lambs $14 million budget, it was released on Valentine's Day, 1991. Made back all of its budget opening weekend, and Hannibal made three hundred and fifty one million dollars on a budget of eighty seven million dollars. So that was also a big hit. Then there was Hannibal Rising, which I never saw. That was two thousand. Was he in all
1: these? Wow, that's wow, that's I love Hopkins. Uh,
0: Red Dragon. Yeah. Hopkins was definitely. I don't remember Red Dragon. That was the Ed Norton, Ray Fiennes, Emily Watson, Harvey Keitel, the great Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like they had an incredible. Well, so they didn't let like
1: some movies we made. Like you know, like I've heard the argument. If if Hangover was, I know this is not this doesn't deserve being the same conversation, but <laughs> Hangover might be thought of as an all time classic comedy if they didn't have the second, third, and fourth. You know what I mean? Like, do you think... uh, It doesn't sound like Silence of the Lambs was hurt by them going for the cash grabs and the sequels that were not as good.
0: No, but that is a good point. They definitely felt like cash grabs and obviously there was such an appetite for this character who was one of the great villains of all time, but the the rest of them didn't live up to the hype. Yeah. But to your point, yeah, The Hangover 1 is all-time great comedy. We'll do it at one point here on uh, Cinephile.
1: The second one was like Okay, third one, like, unwatchable. Yeah, it it made movie. the yeah, first one, I don't think back as fondly on the first one because there were other ones. I don't. I guess we don't do that with Silence of the Lambs, though. No, it's true. Any other holes you wanted to pick with regards to the film? No, I mean, like, I just, there was just, like, it was really just that one scene of him escaping. Because, like, it went from the most high-security uh, prison ever to just two guys watching him and no one else cares. <laughs> And he like hung, He was able to hang one of the guards. I'm like, how did he pull that off in five minutes? Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a good point. Right. They, they all of a sudden they get the you it's hear like, shots dangling fired. from the
1: like ceiling. It's like, right. how did he get up there? Like, what kind of equipment does he have? Yeah, it looks like he's a crucifixion or something. Like, wow, that's pretty elaborate <laughs> to get that done in, like five minutes. <laughs> that's pretty
0: good. It's an excellent point by you. But overall,
1: enjoyable. Yeah. Like, I get it. I get. I got the hype from like the get go. I was like, most scary movies. I'm either like, it's so over the top that it's actually not scary. So like, this one had like that. Perfect, like just eerie and yeah, it's definitely atmospheric and
0: very creepy and very chilling. Silence of the Lambs, if you haven't seen it, maybe it's worth a revisit. Uh, we're talking about it here as far as our old film is concerned with Halloween right around the corner. Let's finish things up with our new film. It's not a film, it's a series, it's called Rami. It's a show that I love. I've talked about it quite a bit, and the season three is now in the books on Hulu, and I loved it as much as I loved all the rest of the work here of Rami. And it's it's fascinating when you go back to kind of the beginning of Rami. You know, it streams on Hulu. It's considered the first mainstream Muslim-American sitcom. It it comes out, and he actually wins the Golden Globe. He was nominated against Bill Hader from Barry and Michael Douglas for The Kaminsky Method. And shockingly, he wins. And when he goes up there, he even laughs and says, uh, you know, thanks so much, Allah Akbar. I want to thank my God, which was a shot at Ricky Gervais, because Gervais had said, and he's a very well-known atheist. He said, "Whenever you, you know, win your little award, thank your God and get out of here." So Rami literally goes up there and goes, "Alaikum," that means God is great. I want to thank my God. I was going to do that even before I won. Just want to make that (laughs) clear to Ricky Gervais. And he's like, "I know none of you know what my show is. You're like, who is this guy? Was he an editor?" But I have this show called Rami. It's this little show about an Egyptian family growing up in North Jersey. It's how I grew up. And honestly, uh, Egyptians love Michael Douglas. Uh, Michael Douglas, I'm sorry you lost. I'm sure Egyptians would have rather you have won, but. uh, Check out my show. And it kind of became like a signal point because I had seen it and loved it and was thrilled that he won, did not win the Emmy, but that kind of gave the show a little bit of juice. And laughter afterwards he was talking backstage and he said his goal was not to represent all Muslim Americans with the series, which humorously addressed the stereotypes. He said, I think this show is called Rami. And part of why we picked that is because we didn't want to call it Muslims. We didn't want to call it something that would blanket a group of yeah. a million people. It's really a specific story. And the influence of it, if you watch Atlanta, Donald Glover show, you can see the influence there. Maybe a little bit of influence of Louis, Louis C.K., and that it's the main character is, like, Rami Yusuf ends up being the writer. He directs a lot of the episodes, co-writes almost all the episodes. He's the star. But the show, and while his character is interesting, is never better than when it's about all the different other characters. So the season two picked up. He ends up having a marriage. He screws up the marriage because he sleeps with his cousin in Egypt, completely disgraced. He begins season three. Now he's completely kind of just going downwards. He's all about making money, and he's in bed with, wait for it, the Jews, specifically Israelis. So the show kicks off by going to Israel, and I'm like, the the amazing thing about Rami is that they really confront any sort of issues or stereotypes or anything you might think. You might think, wow, Jews, Muslims. I'm like, yeah, they're doing business together. I I don't think they shot in location. I believe they shot on location in Israel. And again, there's humor within it, but it's also eye-opening. Like, I didn't really realize, ever having been Israel, like that area looks really nice. And then if you cross the border into Palestine, and it becomes obviously a much more different situation, much more poverty. And, and he's trying to kind of balance the whole situation with a lot of humor and, and millennial-type atmosphere. I'll give you a specific example. While he's in Israel trying to get a deal done with these fellow uh, people... He's also, like, messaging on social media, hooking up with this Palestinian girl. So, like, he's hooking up with her. He's like, hey, can the Uber take me? Like, I'm not sure how that works. Can I go on the other side? And, then, and he's like, you just want to have sex and go back? He's like, well, that's kind of what I was hoping. Like, I'm just here for a, a deal. Like, I live in America. Like, you know, he's got his Mets cap on the whole time. He's like, do you not understand what's happening here? And And... I think it's pretty brave when you're the main character to make your character look dislikable and make him look uh, difficult. Like it's it's very fearless in its depiction. And I think a lot of times, you know, religion, if you watch it in a show, it's going to be condemned or mocked. But here he's, he's really examining it. And all the different characters are fascinating. I think that's the best element of a show. If you say the main character is good, but the other characters are even better. And what he does with Rami is there's 10 episodes. The first two to four are mainly about Rami. And then he does individual episodes about different characters, which to my understanding is also what Atlanta did. I did watch it, but Donald Glover did as well. So you've got Mesa, who's the mother played by Hayam Abbas. She's also in uh, a succession. you got Farouk, who is Amr Wakid, who is the father. you got Dina, his sister, May Kalami. Um, and you've got all of them kind of collaborating together. And each character is very interesting. So the mother and the father, they're dealing with, and this isn't you know specific to immigrants, it's just people who've been married for 25 years. He's lost his job. They started Instacart together. He thinks he's going to be a life coach. She's trying to quit smoking, then goes to vaping. At one point, she goes to a vape store and she She's like, hey, do you have any cigarettes here? They're like, no, just vape. And she's like, why? She's like, just vape. He's like, wow, well, how can you not get a pack of cigarettes? Like, I'm trying to quit smoking. I just want a pack of smoke. She's like, no. She's like, you should try like this stuff. It's herbal, it's CBD. She's like, oh, how about this idea? How about I try smoking crack? Because that's what everyone's doing now. She's like, everyone wants to do drugs. I just want a freaking cigarette. Like, what is the <laughs> problem with the world today? Like, it just shows how that generational gap exists. And for the father, you know, he seems like he's well-meaning, but he's also has these old school ideas. It's my house, I can do what I want, I can change things. And the daughter is caught up in all this. The daughter at one point is studying to be an attorney but she's so frustrated about this angst in her house she goes and she's talking to this therapist and the therapist says you know your parents are like verbally abusive towards you you're growing up in an environment so difficult and she says I just thought we were Arabs like I'm like nah, you know, people are shouting yelling at me like whatever this is the life that I've been doing me living and She ends up going uh, this hilarious scene where they're doing a reenactment and the guy's like, I'm gonna be your father and he starts doing a Borat accent and she's like, Yeah, my my dad doesn't talk like Borat, he's he's Egyptian and he's like, yeah, I'm going to, he keeps going, just like, boring. The mob's just doing an Indian accent. She goes, hey, I'm not Indian. Like, my family's Egyptian, like, I don't, and the therapist's like, no, just, just go there. It. It's a role play. Like, just pretend that that's your mother, that's your father. What would you want to say to them? And she's like, yeah, I'm not sure about this racial environment that I'm now in. <laughs> the most fascinating character of them all is Uncle Nassim. Now, his character is one of those guys you watch in a show, and you go, I know what this guy's all about. Big strong man, big beard, misogynistic, anti-Semitic. You're like, yep, I totally got what this guy's coming. And he's funny and he's entertaining, but he's not a very interesting character. And then they flip the script because you're like, I did not see this coming. All of a sudden he's like the strongman that goes to Saunas and wait, he's gay? I'm like, oh my God, didn't expect that turn. Closeted gay man. Coming over from Egypt, kind of lost his faith, but has this exterior being rough and tough. And some of the best scenes in season three, when he goes to Rami as well to Israel, he can't get to Palestine because he's a Palestinian passport. They go, that's we're sending you back to America. He starts meeting guys on Grindr. And I'm like, wow, I did not expect this show to be taking this turn. And in one scene, the guy takes a medication. He's like, what's that? He's like, it's for HIV. He's like, what? You gave me HIV? Like, what's wrong with you? And he's like, no, no. He's like, how can you be gay and not know what this medication is? He's like, I'm not gay. He's like, we just had sex. He's like, I'm a not a gay. I'm just, I came into this country and nobody was willing to help me. So I'm just giving a little bit of sugar. He's like, what? How could you say that? He's like, I'm just, this is not about the sex. I'm just giving sugar. I'm trying to help you a little bit. He ends up almost being outed and has just a horrifying experience, which again is played for seriousness, but also some funny. Um, I mean, at one scene, if you've ever been around certain minorities, like he, everyone always fighting over the bill. He pulls a gun over paying a bill. He just goes insane. <laughs> And again, it goes back to Rami and his friends, Mo Amr, who has a great show on Netflix. He isn't in the season as much. I think he's got his own show now. Let's be honest. He's kind of cashed out, but he's really funny. Dave Merhedge is one of his friends in the show, plays Dr. Ahmed. We've had him previously on Cinephile. He's actually a Lebanese Christian, which makes it funny because he's actually the most religious guy on the show. He wants to have a wife with his, wants to have a child with his wife. His wife does not want to have a child. Ends up thinking about having a second wife because this woman is dying and she's reaching out to him with a second wife. I don't want to say anything further except it's episode seven and that's one of the most filthy reveals I would have expected of a show like this but it's really funny and if you like uh, potty humor... You're going to like where this episode goes. I don't want to say anything further about it. As for Rami, he's lost his faith. He's just, just swimming in money. He doesn't care about life. Ends up going to a massage parlor in Jersey. He meets Sarita Chowdhury, the great Indian actress, Mississippi Masala. They end up hooking up, and, he's, and she's like, listen, I'm off work. She goes, I'll pay you a lot of money to hang out with me. They go back to this place. She goes, I want you to hit me. And she's like, okay, slaps him. And she's like, I know what you're about. You know, you Arab boys. You guys are just looking for a little bit of love, looking for a little bit of attention. Ends up having a, a crisis where his dog dies. He goes to a Sex Addicts Anonymous meeting. And the way it's shot, it looks like a very serious meeting. Like, each guy's talking about his problems. There's this Sikh guy's like, yeah, I just, I'm always thinking about sex. And it's caused problems for me. I'm having sex, blah, blah, blah. So they get to Rob, and he gives this really passionate speech. He's like, yeah. He's like, listen, man, I, I got married. I screwed up. I cheated on her with my cousin. Things happened. Now I had to pay a lot of money. I've lost my faith. I've lost my way. I'm working with his jewelries. I went to Israel. This kid got thrown. Like, I'm just upset right now. He's like, so, you know, when I have sex, I'm just, I'm just getting out this emotion. And he's like, and now because of my problem, because of my problem, I killed a dog. And one of the guys looks at him and is like, wait, what? You, you killed a dog? Like, like, we're in a sex accident. And he goes, I didn't fuck my dog. I, I just said that my dog died because of this problem. He's like, oh, I just wanted to clarify that. There's also a guest star, Sheikh Abu Bakr. Uh, They've got a great song by Halal Guys, which is hilarious. And probably one of the funniest jokes of the entire show is when one guy who converts to Islam, he's talking about halal comedy, and he shows a picture of James Harden. He goes, look, Sheikh James Harden. Ultimately, you know, it's a show which feels like it's targeted for a certain audience, obviously an Arab audience. They're splinking in Wallahi and Inshallah and Yala, but it ends up being a show that I think is a lot more communal than you might realize. And the, the final scenes ends on such a moment of clarity and you're not sure it's it's is it hallucinogens? Is it his faith rekindled? But Rami is able to really balance the sacred and the profane. And I'm just amazed that this is kind of like the little engine that could this show. I'll give you an example. The other day we needed a babysitter. A girl comes over and I go, Hey, how are you? And my wife goes, Oh, she's Muslim. I go, Aslam alaikum. She's like, Islam. I go, where's your family from? She says, Oh, I'm half Palestinian, half Egyptian. And right away I go, Oh, have you seen Rami? She's like, Oh, I love that show. It's so good. I'm like, Yeah. I go, Is is it accurate? Like, I'm not Egyptian. And she's like, Yeah, oh yeah. Like, this thing is accurate. This is funny. A lot of people relate to it. So I just think it's the kind of show thats it takes chances. It's, uh, it's daring. It's controversial. And that gets us to the main issue, which is if anybody knows how I can get this guy on the podcast, we got to do it. Because I've tried to get him on the pod. And as a matter of fact, he reached out to me. That's right. Rami Yusuf. Before the world blew up, he saw me praising him, tweeting him. So he, he snuck into my DMs. This is June 22nd, 2020. He said, thanks for all the support with the show, dude. I'm like, wow. So I say, hey, Mubarak, brother. Hey, fellow Muslim, I'm so proud of you. Uh, Mahershala Ali is my friend. Dave Merhedge is Canadian. Would love to have you in the pod. He writes back, Oh, so dope, man. I appreciate you. Amazing. I go back again. I said, Can you do my podcast? He said, Would love to. I said, you're the best. I said, give me your contact information. Sounds like he he you we're not,
1: you haven't booked him yet. This is what it sounds like. June, this, this, is
0: is, this is of June 23rd, 2020. He gives you the information. I I I message those people, his his people. Nothing. And then since then, I'm like, July 9th, I sent a DM, August 28th, and then this year, October 2nd, I sent another message. I'm like, I think he's closed his DMs. I, I, I don't think he's checking his messages. I think now he's too we big. We can only deal, hope that's so- the
1: case because if not, he's checking them and just choosing to ignore you. <laughs>
0: He's making the very concerted choice to go, This, not this guy, again. I'm not going to do his podcast. He used to be on ESPN, now he's... No, I'll do Cinephobe. I'll talk to Amin El-Hassan. I like him more than this I mean, he is friends with Mershal Ali. Yes. <laughs> so I got I to hit up Mershal Ali and figure out a way to make this happen. But anyways, check out Rami once again, uh, season three. Really funny. Very entertaining right now on Hulu. Thanks once again to our special guests, Jeremy Strong and James Gray. Check out Armageddon Time. It is in theaters this Friday. Next week, Big get. We got Hanks. (laughs) Let's just leave it at that for the audience. We got Hanks. Three words, we got Hanks. (laughs) And I'll see you at the movies.
2: It's the Kia summer sticker sales
1: event. So give your friends something to look at. Like a and b with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers